You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. This episode is sponsored by my Foundations of a Yoga Business Group Coaching Program. Registration for the Spring 2020 cohort is now open, and you can learn more and register at teachingyoga.net slash foundations. Hello, yoga teacher. Today's episode is for all of you who feel like our world is too hectic and too frenzied and want to bring more of yoga's internal practices into your life. My guest, Jerome Smith, is an ordained pandit in the Himalayan tradition. His studies include several years of intensive training in India. As a teacher of the Himalayan tradition, Jerome initiates students on behalf of the lineage and teaches and guides on various subjects such as Raja Yoga, Meditation, Tantra, and Vedanta. Jerome is the director of the Asheville Meditation Center, a non-profit spiritual organization based in Asheville, North Carolina. I've known Jerome for a long time, and he's always impressed me with his quiet integrity. Many years ago, Back when you needed to be an audio nerd to put out a podcast, I was trying to get other yoga teachers to write for my website, The Yoga Teacher Resource. Out of so many who told me, yes, I would love to write for you, Jerome was one of a handful who actually came through. So when he reached out to me about coming on the podcast, it was an easy yes. I knew that I would be able to count on him for an authentic and down-to-earth version of traditional yoga and traditional yogic philosophy. In an age when so many people are getting famous with just a few years of teaching under their belt, I think it's really important to listen to the voices who've been around for a really long time like Jerome has. As you'll hear in the interview, Jerome and I come at yoga from very different perspectives and very different approaches, yet at the same time, we're able to find the places where our approaches overlap, and to me, that's really a place of potentiality where this very traditional approach and this more eclectic approach, where is their common ground there? I'm really interested in that. And if you are too, I think you'll really enjoy today's conversation. So I'd love to hear just a really brief recap of your journey with yoga and what it is about the internal practices of yoga that really hold your attention and make you feel so passionate about sharing this. Yes. Well, I started yoga going to the Himalayan Institute, which is located in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. I went there thinking I'd be there for three months. I wanted to immerse myself in a yoga experience living in a community. I ended up connecting with with a teacher and probably about a year I was there. And after I left there, I went back out to work and I was just drawn to go back. So I went back a few times and eventually it kind of became the focus for my spiritual path. And as far as internal practices go, uh, the way we were taught in our tradition, the Himalayan tradition, the external practices are designed to lead towards internal practices. So the asana practice, everything we do leads deeper and deeper within. So the practice become more practices become more internal. So that was just a training that that we had at that time. Sort of like the eight limbs. 
Exactly, exactly. And start from the external and gradually uh, go within. So currently, when people think about yoga, most people think about the external practices. Why do you think that is? And is that a problem in your mind or an opportunity? It, it can be both. And that's an excellent question. Yoga, the physical aspect of yoga really, I think, encourages that more external focus because it's about the external body. It's about you know, the environment. You know, the yoga studio has the environment and a lot of external cues are in that environment. And I think a lot of people have to start from the body. And some people work, go within, which is, which is the good thing, because sometimes people do start with the body and they want it to seek more. Others stick with the body. And I think we see that there's more styles and more, you know, there's clothing lines. There, there is that external focus. So I think a lot of it depends on the particular person. If someone really wants spirituality, even though they may come to it from an external perspective, I think if they really desire it, somehow something happens and they start to seek something more internal. So you think it has more to do with the internal drive of a specific person versus their teachers and what they're exposed to? Yes, ultimately. I think I read somewhere in my readings in the spiritual books that they say even if you know a student comes upon a teacher or a system that's not good or not helpful, if that student is sincere, they may have that experience it, but at some point they'll be led to whatever they desire. If they want more spirituality, something deeper, something more internal, they'll be led there, even if they have to go through an experience of something that may not suit that, something may be more external, or maybe the teacher is not quite the right fit. So in the yoga systems, they say that the desire of the student is most important, that that's more important than anything else. If a student has a pure uh, desire, they'll be led in the right direction. And traditionally, yoga was taught as very explicitly leading towards the internal practices, which is not, not all the yoga systems that are popular today are very clear about that or have that as a focus. Some of them are much more wellness focused. Um, but your tradition, I'm assuming, and from what I know and understand, there is a clear progression from external to internal. Is that correct? Yes, it is. The goal of the sages of the Himalayan tradition, their goal was to really experience that which is divine consciousness. The religions tell us that there is the divine, whether you call it God or divine mother, um, it doesn't matter. But it's something that's always separate from you, like you're the individual and then there's the divine and you seek to find that, that connection. But the yogis wanted to take a step further and they wanted actually to experience that and find that within because sometimes we're told traditions tell us that god is within and the yogis want to say well if god is within then how do we experience that and the only way to experience that is to go within i mean if god is within then you have to find ways to go within to connect with that within yourself so that was why all the practices eventually lead within for example um in the traditions, asana practice, basically they start off of, you know, maybe 12 or so of basic asanas that were taught. And those asanas in the West, you know, we focus on expanding. So we do more and more asana and more and more physical, and we try to see how far we can go externally. In our tradition, you actually narrow down the amount of postures you do. 
from your own personal practice, you start to become aware of those postures that work for you, that get your body in line, get your energy in line, you know, that you can breathe properly. So those particular postures, the one you focus on. So we don't keep doing more and more asana practice. We start to narrow it down to we do fewer practice and then just hold them longer. And then the breath comes in and then we start to focus the breath. And then that's when you start to move on towards the other rungs in the um, Raja Yoga system. Oh, I love that. That's really interesting that rather than expanding the number of asanas and the types of practices you do, you hone in on what you need. And I imagine that that might actually change a bit over time, that what you need in one season of your life isn't necessarily going to be what you need in a later season. Does that is that part of the system where you would continue adjusting that as things change? Yes, you're, you're, yeah, that's very perceptive. That's, that's correct. You start to know yourself. And in the Western model, you know, it's great to have, have teachers and, and places to go for community, for asana practice. But when you do your own practice and develop your own practice, what our, which our tradition emphasizes, then you can start to discover that. Because when you go to a class where teaching, a teacher's leading you, well, you tend to do what the teacher tells you to do, of course. And sometimes there becomes a dependency on that. I know people who do yoga, but they only do it when they go to classes. When you have to do it for, on yourself to develop your own practice, then that gives you that chance to tune into your own body. Maybe some days you can't do what an external teacher tells you to do, then you need to be able to honor that. So when you do your own practice, you start to listen to yourself. Instead of listening to an external teacher, you listen to your own consciousness and it kind of guides you into what asanas are appropriate. And some days, you know, you do something different. Maybe some days you can do inverted postures, maybe another day you can't. So your own consciousness starts to become your guide. And that's how in our tradition, you really deepen your practice is when you start to listen to your inner consciousness. And tell me what your personal experience has been of the benefits of focusing on internal practices in your life. Our teacher would say we're citizens of the external world and we're citizens of the internal world. And we have to create a balance. I live in the world. I don't live in a cave, in a monastery. So the internal practices help me create balance in the external world. For example, just dealing with basic external things. We live in a culture that can be fast-paced. It can be stressful. Being able to go within, being able to connect with my breath, which means I can exert a certain effect on my nervous system so that when there is stressful situations, I can mitigate that to a large extent simply by understanding how to connect within in order to help navigate the external world. And can you give some specific examples of something maybe in the last week or so that where you drew on your years of practice and internal practices and applied it to something going on in your life? I mean, nothing very specific in the last week has come to mind, but because I, I live a pretty, I'm fortunate in some ways, maybe some people would call it unfortunate. It depends on your perspective, but I live alone. I don't have a relationship. I don't have children. So for the most part, I have my own business. So for the most part, I can control my environment. So my life tends to be naturally peaceful. Um, unless, of course, I create my own drama, which I tend not to or try not to. So I have a pretty peaceful life. So on a day-to-day -day basis, a weekly basis, typically things don't really come 
up to disturb me. But again, it took me years to create a lifestyle to allow for that. But when things do come up, of course I'm human, and of course there's, there's the reaction, but there's a part of me that just can observe that. There's a part of me that, that is a non-reactor. And I tune into that part of myself and I watch myself, I, I see the reaction, and, but I can let it go. I don't tend to hold on to reaction or take that reaction and run with it. I can get back to that observer, that stillness within me. And that's what I developed through my years of internal practice. I had that point of stillness within me and I can get to it pretty, pretty easily. In our tradition, we're, tr we're, we're trained not to focus so much on controlling the external world, but to control the internal world. And so controlling the breath is one of the basics, what, basic ways to do that. And controlling the bath, breath doesn't necessarily mean advanced pranayama practice. Sometimes it just means breath awareness, keeping a part of your mind always connected with the breath. So would you say that breath awareness is one of the main techniques that you teach people who are interested in transitioning from a more externally focused practice to a more internally focused practice? Because in a way, it's, it is like the bridge. Yes, that's, that's correct. It is. It's, the, it's a bridge between body and mind. It's a bridge between consciousness, soul, and body and mind. So it is the bridge. And by being able to focus on that or pay attention to that, it allows you to have that just moment of just peace where even if something external comes and disturbs you, if you get back to the breath, it allows you to come back to that center. So breathing is, and again, you know, you go to yoga classes, as you asked earlier, you go to yoga classes and you, and you get various breathing practice. One te teacher may tell you to do breath of fire or someone else tells you to, you know, as you're doing sun salutations, focus on the breath. So there's a lot of different practices. But the difference between those practices is that you don't do those all the time. But breath awareness is something you can do always, whether you sit in a car in traffic, no matter what you're doing, you can always connect with the breath and train your mind to always keep that connection with the breath. So that's, again, that's example, one of those more subtle practices and internal practices in our tradition, which is um, more recommended or more helpful than just doing various pranayama exercises kind of randomly. Mm. So you would say, that it's better to go deep into one practice and really commit to it over a long period of time versus sampling a whole bunch of practices. Yes, that's traditionally how yogis were taught. Obviously, we live in the West where we have information superhighway. We can go online and we can find mantras. We can find all kinds of breathing practices. We can find all this information. But in our tradition, it's about learning systematically. So you build a foundation, you learn one thing and you master that, or at least become adept at it to some degree, and then you move on to the next. So traditionally, the Himalayan masters weren't always accessible. They lived in caves, they lived quietly. So if you're fortunate enough to find one or be guided to find one, that master, if they decided to accept you, if you show that you were, had the ability to be a a student with a certain level of concentration, so they accepted you, they would give you a particular practice to do, and you would leave. They didn't necessarily have studios and things. I mean, sometimes they were just solitary in caves, and they'd give you that, and you would leave, and you would go do that practice. And when you reach a certain level of accomplishment, then you'd go back, and then they'd give you another practice. So you weren't given, you weren't exposed to all these practices at once. You were given one, 
uh, the teacher was able to assess your competency level. If they felt you're ready to move to the next step, they would. So they taught in a very systematic way. One practice led to another, and it was, it was really consciously that way, versus now where when you don't have supervision and you can go to different classes from different teachers, you can just get a bunch of different practices. But if you don't know how to build up on those, you don't know how to approach it systematically, sometimes you don't get the results you may, you may be looking for. Right. And in fact, even within one teacher, a pattern that I've noticed and I have recognized in myself too, is this desire to be constantly sharing new content, new information with your students. One of the challenges that yoga teachers tell me that they have is, oh, I want to keep teaching new things. I want to keep my classes fresh and interesting. And this is, I think, one of the big danger zones for the commodification of yoga where, you know, we, we look at our students as customers and clients. So we want to please them, but pleasing them is not necessarily the same as giving them what they need. And so we were, you know, kind of on this hamster wheel of wanting to offer new things all the time, but that might not be. And in fact, probably isn't in the best interest of the students. And it's this really challenging thing because the the benefit of yoga comes over a long period of time and it's very hard to sell that it's very hard to show that to people because they have to be committed to trying it before they can actually experience the benefits well said and i think that in a way is an underlying condition of yoga in the west yoga is popular in the west anything in the West becomes popular when it can be monetized. So, you know, yoga is monetized now. There's, there's, it's an industry now that generates a lot of money, you know, magazines, there's clothing, there's apps, there's so many things out there. So you're right, teachers have to feel they have to compete with that. So if you're teaching a, a class and, you know, your students want more, or if you have a studio and they want different styles, then you bring, you bring those in because that's, that's what's going to keep your studio going. And as far as your students, too, I mean, students get bored easily. They have a short attention span because in the West, we're conditioned to always, you know, what's the next thing? You know, we're always what's next? What's, what's next? We're kind of a what's next culture. And we want shiny, you know, what's the next new shiny new toy? So what's the next shiny new practice? Oh, today I went and I learned this practice. So I learned that. And people feel like, okay, I'm getting something out of it. It's, it's you know, I'm getting my money's worth or whatever. I'm getting what I want. So sometimes in the West, the, two, the teachers are driving the teachings versus the teacher driving the teachings. So it's a real difference there. In our tradition, you know, we like me as a teacher, I see myself as an instrument. So it's not about me. I don't really teach for money, so I don't have to be concerned about paying bills or anything. So I work with students. You know, sometimes it's more of a mentorship role, and it's up to them. And when they connect with me and reach out to me, I relate to them. But if I don't see them anymore or they move on to something else, it's okay with me. It doesn't really, you know, hurt my bottom line. I don't have that attachment. So therefore, I don't have to feel like, oh, I have to do this to keep my students excited or oh, I have to do that because, you know, to give them more or to give them what they're paying for. I don't have that pressure. Yeah, that's definitely a, a really helpful place to be in your teaching, which not everybody's there. Uh, a lot of people have, do have to pay their bills through their teaching. 
and it's a more complicated um, it's a more complicated kind of situation where you're continuing to try to do what's best for your students, but it's impossible to step out of that role of needing to make a living at the same time. So I, you know, I, I talk to a lot of yoga teachers who are, for whatever reason, in the situation where they can really just teach a service and that's a beautiful place to be but it's also not not the reality for most yoga teachers so <laughs> we got we kind of got to deal with the reality as it is so the himalayan tradition has a very specific way of thinking about the mind and i was wondering if you would break that down for us the aspects of the mind yes yes so the mind is seen as a combination of four different aspects and those four work together. So one aspect of the mind is called chitta and that basically is the storehouse for memories and experiences. So everything you experience gets stored there to later be recalled at some point and sometimes, and most of those are lie in the subconscious mind. And so they only come up when, when needed. So it's basically just a storehouse of memories and experiences. So that's chitta. And then another part of the mind is called manas. And manas is basically the part of your mind that perceives experiences through the senses. So your eyes see things and then you record it or you hear things and you record it into chitta or the subconscious mind. So that's another aspect of mind, the manas, the perceiver. And then there's another part of the mind called ahamkara. And ahamkara is the ego. And the ego is not, in the West we think of, oh, someone has an ego, a big ego, and sometimes we see it as, as a negative. Um, basically, the ego is simply your sense of self, who you are. You know, like for example, me, I, you know, I, I can identify with being a male, I can be identify with whatever, but, but who I am, the sense of, sense of who I am, that's ego. And that ego is what allows your soul to operate as an individual. Your individual and have individual experiences. And then the fourth aspect or the highest aspect of mind is called buddhi, and that is the intellect or the higher part of your mind. And that part of your mind is able to organize the other three. It's able to um, help us access truth, that which is real versus that which is unreal. Sometimes the other aspect of your minds may not, like obviously our senses, you know, we see things, but what we see may be colored by the subconscious mind. So we may not actually see the full truth. We might see only partial truth. So that higher part of mind allows you to analyze those other aspects. So you may have a certain thought or something and you can sit back and say, wait a minute, you know, I thought that was a serpent, but really it was just a rope, you know, or whatever misperceptions we have, that part of your mind can kind of go in and organize it. And that part of your mind has also allowed you to connect with that inner knowledge that doesn't come from the external world. Uh, typically, we tend to depend upon that external information that we get through the senses, and that becomes our truth. But through that higher aspect of mind, we're able to find that there's a deeper way of knowing that's not dependent upon the senses. So would you say that buddhi is where wisdom comes from? Yes, yes. It's, it's definitely the higher function of mind. And it's more in the front uh, part of the mind, the energy. So when you're meditating, they say focus on the third eye. 
you know, that, that front part of the mind, the front part of the brain is, is where that ability to really um, analyze things and come arrive at a certain truth. So that's why, you know, meditation is mostly happening, but the subconscious mind is using the back of the brain, but the front of the mind is where you can actually direct your mind to, 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 uh, to, to, to find truth and to discover what's real and distinguishing what's real and what's unreal. So how do we use this framework in our practice? So in yoga, our teacher would say, you know, having a one-pointed mind, you know, and he'd also say things like, you know, an undisciplined mind is not fit for meditation. So the process of disciplining the mind, because your mind is, our minds are our greatest tool, our greatest asset. I mean, the body obviously can take us so far, but our body has its limitations, of course, but the mind is really our greatest tool. It can take us further than what the body can, and it can give us an experience of overall joy and peace in life that the body may or may not be able to always give us. Sure, we can experience physical pleasures, but the mind can take us even further than that. So understanding the mind, just really understanding the functions of the mind and organizing those properly. And one one point of mind means when all those four functions are, are working in a healthy way. So you have a you know, a good sense of ego, you know, not negating your ego or putting it down, but just having a balanced understanding of ego and the functions and accepting that. Um, as far as manas goes, the perceiver, as you become more balanced and as you start to pur- purify the mind through practice, then your perceptions become a little more, more clear. They're not so clouded by, you know, the past or, or future fears. Then when they talk about, the yogis talk about being in the moment, Basically, that means seeing things as they really are, not being affected so much by, by the past. And a lot of the past that influences is in the subconscious mind. So as you do practices, those things start to rise. Like in meditation, people think, oh, when you meditate, there should be no thoughts. No, actually, there's a stage in meditation where things do come up. And I call it self-therapy, where those things arise and gives you a chance to see what they are. Okay, that's in my subconscious mind. Those certain tendencies originate in the subconscious mind, and you don't you don't need to judge them. You tend to just accept them, make peace with them. That the part of self, knowing thyself, that's what it is. Knowing all that's influencing, knowing all aspects of the mind, uncovering things in the subconscious mind. So it's a it's kind of a complete practice. So meditation helps, just that stillness, allowing those things to arise, allowing yourself to not necessarily identify with certain things. Uh, contemplation works hand in hand with meditation and contemplation is where you sort of direct your mind in, in, in the direction you want it to. Because meditation by itself, I mean, you can meditate on a lot of things. You know, meditation doesn't necessarily mean it's about spirituality. You can meditate to get worldly, worldly things, you know, by concentration, because meditation basically is unbroken concentration. So you can concentrate, concentrate on, on worldly things. So contemplation helps you really, like, the, like for example, you know, the, question, the questions the yogis ask themselves, you know, well, who am I? Where did I come from? So that set the tone of their meditation because they're asking those deeper internal questions. So I'm just going to pause for a moment because I'm, I'm going on. So I'll just pause for a minute. And- <laughs> so it sounds like the framework of the four aspects of the mind are about developing a healthy relationship with each of the four aspects and using 
each of the four aspects in the healthiest and most beneficial way versus moving through them towards always being in booty. Exactly. Well said. That's right. Yeah. Just organize them and they're balanced. There's times when the mind does need to contact the external world and navigate the external world. So a focused, disciplined mind can do that in a very effective way. And then there's times when the mind is turned inwards and that helps go within. So just, you know, balancing those four helps, helps both in the external world and in the internal world. And you talk about that meditation can be progressive and you've kind of hinted around this a little bit in what you were just talking about. Can you state more specifically what are the stages of meditation from the Himalayan tradition and how would we know that we were ready to move from one stage to another? That's a good question. Well, in the beginning, it's very basic. The first step is just to learn to be still. And being still comes before meditation. And so in the Raja Yoga system, being still first starts with the body, being able to sit still in your, in your asana. And then it moves more towards the breath, being able to still the breath. So when the breath is, is rapid or, or out of control, just being able to regulate the breath, so the stillness of the breath. And then as those two things happen, and then the senses become still. So the senses aren't always looking out. The energy of the senses that normally are going to contact the external world starts to go within. So that energy starts starts to go within. And then from that point, then meditation starts to happen. So in the beginning, usually we tell people just to focus on being still, just sitting still and focusing on the breath. And then from that point, it it moves. You just start to go drawn deeper. So maybe your habit is 10 minutes. You start off with 10 minutes of stillness. And then when that becomes uncomfortable, okay, you get up and you move on. Eventually, if you practice long enough, then that 10 minutes moves to 20 minutes and, and so forth. So it's really about the consistent practice. Anything you do on a regular basis starts to become a habit. So if you make meditation a habit or stillness a habit, and sometimes that stillness may not be even sitting. It may be just being able to go somewhere and walk in the woods and enjoy the quietness of nature. So making stillness a habit so the mind gets those time, time out. And I think that's in our culture, it's difficult because we're trained to always be active, keep the mind active, keep, keep you know, doing things, keep being busy. So just, I'm sorry if my dog is barking in the back. Can you hear that? Okay, sorry, I'm back. That was just so distracting it's to me. It's super distracting when your pet is like... I know. And I'm thinking, oh. You know they're not really in distress, but they're acting like they're in distress. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, so sorry. I'm trying to stay focused and talk, but I just had to say, you know what? I just had to do something about this because I can't... Totally. I'm glad you did. I'm glad yeah, you did. I can't really focus. So, so maybe we can delete that part and do you want to delete that and start all with the question or what do you, what do you... I don't know we'll we'll, okay. we'll see we'll see it can be okay. kind of a you know like a real moment right I mean I'll probably I'll just cut out the part where you're gone okay <laughs> right <laughs> okay so let me see if I can recap what I remember you talking about we were talking about progressive meditation and you said that the first step is just to learn how to be still and then you learn to turn your attention inward. 
and then you basically start to extend the amount of time that your focus is inward. Is that is that pretty much what you were talking about, kind of the stages of meditation? Yes, as your capacity increases, then you notice that it becomes easier to be in that stillness longer. Which seems a little bit like the exact opposite of social media and what all the stimulation from our lives are encouraging, you know, like for me, it's not even just social media. For example, if I'm bored, I'll put on a podcast and I'll listen to, you know, I'll listen to somebody else's voice and somebody else's perspective on something instead of, you know, like there's so much potential for input right now. And I think what I'm hearing the system here is about halting the input from the outside and really seeing what's already there inside. Yes. And people have to understand that most of that work is not done when you're actually sitting. People think, oh, when you sit to meditate, that's when you deal with quieting the mind. And that's when you, you know, work with that. Actually, what you do when you're not meditating is really more important. So for example, the yogis went and lived in caves and monasteries, so they didn't have all those distractions. Obviously, they didn't have social media, things like that. So they didn't have as much external input as we do, where we have to understand that, okay, it'd be nice to meditate like the yogis, but we have to minimize all that external distraction. Because whatever you train your mind to do all the rest of the time when you're not meditating, well, that's what your mind's going to do when you're meditating. So if you train your mind to be constantly busy all the time and constantly being stimulated and getting information from the external world, when you start to meditate, that's what your mind's going to want to do. And I, I, I can't count on how many times people will say, oh, I can't meditate or what's difficult or, oh, my mind is busy. I can't stop my mind. Mm. Well, of course you can't. You can't, st- you can't stop it in those few minutes that you're meditating. That's just an unrealistic ex- expectation. But what you can do is you can minimize some of that in your day-to-day life. Like maybe you don't need to watch the news at night or you know, maybe you don't need to check your phone as much or maybe you don't need to be on Facebook as much. You need to just analyze your life and see how much of that extraneous activity that you can eliminate. You know, if, if meditation and going within is a goal, then to be successful in anything, it t- takes a certain amount of sacrifice. So you may have to sacrifice or give up some of that external stimulation but that's what it's going to take because if you keep doing that, you know, for 23 hours and 30 minutes, for that 30 minutes that you're meditating, it's not going to overcome the habit that you've created all the rest of your day. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And it really gives me a lot of, um, I don't want to say concern, but I'm curious in a concerned way about the younger generation who is, growing up, never pausing from the stimulation of outside sources. And what I really mean to say is they never have the opportunity to be bored. They're never bored. Like, do you remember as a kid, like how many hours you had to spend just doing nothing because there wasn't anything to do? Like you'd go outside and maybe you'd like throw a stick around or (laughs) sit under a tree or whatever. But you know, that experience of no stimulation, which can be kind of uncomfortable, right? It's not something that most people seek out naturally. Some people do, but most of us don't. 
we generally want to seek out more stimulation, more input, more um, distraction from paying attention to what's happening inside our minds. So I, I know that that's not your area of expertise, but that's just kind of what my thoughts are. And I am not really leading anywhere super, super um, clear with this, but I'm concerned about the younger generation and this level of constant input. Well, I can totally relate to, to that. I mean, I, I don't have children of my own, but I do see the younger generations. I see that see them inter interacting, and that is a challenge. Uh, there's a lot of cultural conditioning that can be a challenge for people in the West here in America trying to pursue an internal practice like, like yoga or meditation. And that's something we have to look at and we have to understand that. And we have to have, you know, compassion or understanding that that, that, is, that is something we're conditioned. We're conditioned to, to be very externalized, to be stimulated. That, that keeps us engaged. It keeps us supporting you know, social media or all these things out there, keeping us externally focused and keeping us busy like that supports a lot of structures in our culture. So we're conditioned to do that. We're conditioned to always be consuming it. We're, cons we're consumer cons culture. We yeah. consume foods. We need a lot of stimulation food. If you ask someone to eat the same food every day, people are like, that's like punishment or torture for people. So needing stimulating foods, maybe have a lot of food options, um, having a lot of experiences, you know, or a lot of information, constantly being able to, to have a lot of information. So yeah, we are, we are kind of conditioned to constantly be busy and constantly consuming and constantly um, experiencing the external world. So that's something a person has to really evaluate. A person on a spiritual path has to really evaluate that and make a choice. If spirituality is that important or, or doing that, then maybe you're able to cut back some of that. If it's not, then you still want to do all those things, but it will be challenging for you to go within if you want to keep all that going. And as you say, younger, younger generations, they're even more conditioned to that than we are because, you know, they grew up with cell phones and those things like that. So how they're going to navigate that and find their own spiritual paths, that'll be interesting to, to see, you know. I feel like, I mean, yes, on, in a way it can be a concern, but I feel like consciousness and spirituality is always here at all times. So I feel like there would be a means or a way for them to connect to. It may, be, it may look different moving forward. I mean, I can't speak to that, but I still, I have hope, you know, that sincere, sincere people, no matter what ages they are, I mean, spiritual, spirituality has been around for 5,000 or more years. It's, you know, the yoga tradition is over 5,000 years. When they say 5,000 years, they talk about oral, um, written tradition, but the oral tradition extends, you know, further than that. So if it's survived this long, I feel like there, there'll be a way for people moving forward to still benefit from, you know, the practices. Right. And I guess the counterpoint to that challenge of being overstimulated is that more and like way more people have access to the no actual knowledge and information than ever before. Yes, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yoga came out in the West and and uh, originally from teachers that came and books were written and now it's so readily available all over the world. So those teachings from the Himalayas, yeah, the benefit of technology and all this information means it's exposed to many more people. So you know, who knows, but 
I feel like, you know, spirituality is always around and it's always accessible to people. If someone's sincere, as I said earlier, if someone's sincere, somehow, some way, it'll be accessible to them. Now, you've been studying in this tradition for quite a while. How long has it been? It's probably been, I started in my early 20s, so it's probably been, you know, 30, 35 years or so by now. And do you remember when you first started 30, 35 years ago? I mean, you had to make a huge commitment to learn. We, you know, you mentioned earlier um, in the past of, you know, finding a teacher and going out in, you know, to find a teacher and you'd only have a little bit of access to them. But even for you, like you had to move and live at the Himalayan Institute to get the training that you got. And there are so many teachers now who are exposed to a ton of information online and not even, not just like random information, but more and more people are putting together comprehensive courses online where you can study with one teacher and learn a system online. So um, that's definitely a huge shift, wouldn't you say? I mean, like I've been, I've been practicing yoga for, let's say, 20 years I've been teaching for 15 and so I remember that when I first started it was the same way it was like it was a bigger commitment to get started because it the knowledge wasn't so easily accessible so we can we can hope that with this greater access that it will in some way mitigate you know the greater challenges I know when I first got involved in teacher's training, you had to, before you were admitted to the program, you had to show that you had been a student for at least, at least two years and, and have your, the teacher or someone vouch for you to say that you took classes. So you had to actually be a student first. And now I know people who, I, I want to be a yoga teacher, you know, and, and they may have taken one or two classes and they, and they go online and they find someone where they can they can join a yoga teacher training program and next thing you know they're a teacher and they haven't really been a student first and it's really hard to really be a teacher in anything unless you've really been a student and have taken that time and gone through you know the challenge of, of being a student so i think that ease sometimes can of being becoming a teacher can sometimes backfire because sometimes i do hear teachers say that well now that i'm a teacher now what you know mm. and, and sometimes they don't have that tradition or they don't have that, that foundation to fall back on. So sometimes it can be challenging. I agree. But I think that the one, like one concept that really needs to be hammered home in these teacher trainings is that to be a good teacher, you need to be a student first. Yes, exactly. And, yep. and not just a student first and then you transition into a teacher, but a student always first. That's like, right. <laughs> you yeah. continue being a student first. That's right. Well said. Well said. I, I totally agree. For however many years you're alive, basically. <laughs> I, I agree. continue being a student. I agree. And there's no way to be a great teacher otherwise. There's no way to really help your students if you're not continuing to deepen your own relationship with what you're teaching from the perspective of a student. Yes, I agree. I agree. And you're still learning. You're still learning. You know, I see myself growing as a teacher. It's, it's a two-way thing. You know, when I, when I work with students or mentors, sometimes, you know, they're, they, they're thankful and, and appreciative. I always make sure I, I thank them too and say, you know, 
being a teacher and working with you inspires me. I get inspired by your, your success, your breakthroughs. Also, it means I need to continue to learn and grow. If I'm going to teach someone, I need, I need to grow myself or else at some point, I'm not going to have any more, anything else to, to teach, anything to share. So I have to continue to deepen my practice too. So I always make sure I acknowledge that and say, this is a two-way thing. It's just not me being a teacher um, giving you this. It's also what you offer me. You offer me an opportunity to continue to grow and be a student myself. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that you want to share for yoga teachers who want to recommit to being a student in this area of internal practices? I think there's always sources out there. I mean, for me, I can only speak from my experiences as, as far as having a tradition. For me, having a tradition gives me a foundation. It's sort of like a check and checks and balances. I think when you're out there by, by yourself, I'm a teacher and I'm all alone out here teaching. You don't have a tradition or not even maybe a tradition, just mentors or, or, or people, senior people to you that you look up to and, and can mentor, mentor you. So I feel like having that connection, you know, not just being out there by yourself, but connecting with something, some sources or resources that can help and support you, I think is very important. Mm, yeah, that makes complete sense. And then what about the difference between, because I love learning from lots of different sources and then kind of seeing where they overlap and seeing where there's differences, because that to me gives me I feel like a more complete picture of what I'm looking at, like a more 3D picture. But, you know, it sounds like for you, it's been really powerful to go very, very deep in one tradition. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about kind of those two ways of being a student. Yeah, some people are wired different differently. Um, I'm a very loyal person. So I'm, it's even relationships from friends and stuff like that. I'm the one that's, stays in there. I'm the one that reaches out and connects. So I tend to be very focused that way and very loyal. So that sort of works for me. And when I found the Himalayan tradition and I connected with the teacher and I saw this wisdom and knowledge in books and I felt like, you know, I could be doing this for many lifetimes. You know, this is enough information and enough there and enough practices for me to work on. So I was in no hurry to, to look somewhere else. And again, along with my personality, that, that kind of sticking with something, which is, which is my, my personality. And I remember my teacher said once too, you know, I think the question came up about the different paths and all these different things. And he said, well, if you want to find water or you're more likely to find water digging one 200 foot well or digging 20 10 foot wells. And it made sense to me. Okay, just stick in there and keep digging and digging this one 200 foot well. Eventually I find wa I'll find water versus trying all these different things, putting energy just to several different different things so that again you know we're all different that that tends to be more my, my more my personality i'm not one that needs a lot of variety in my life it's not only just spiritually but a lot of things i i can stick to certain things and just stay in there so i think everyone has to understand you know your approach to spirituality is somewhat driven by your personality and it's okay for i never tell people who want to try different things or people i work with i said hey if you want to go try something else to tell you with someone else that's fine i mean just because i'm that focused doesn't mean you have to be so i think everyone just has to accept who they are and approach spirituality in a way that matches who they are that makes a lot of sense 
And I love what you're saying about really just honoring the the external side of who you are, which is, I guess that would be the hamkara part of you, right? Yeah, the, yeah. The manifestation, yeah. the external manifestation, and honoring that and, and letting that guide you to some degree is great. Um, I totally, though, agree with you on the sense that jumping from system to system and technique to technique in a kind of random way is also maybe not the fastest way <laughs> to get where you're going. Um, yes. But if that's okay with you, then it could be a really interesting way to go. Um, but I think there's a there's the balance between the ahamkara and the buddhi, where you want to honor your nature, but also watch your nature and be like, okay, is my nature going to take me, like, where's my nature going to have a tendency to take me that might not be really in my best interest? And should my wisdom, the wisdom, the wiser side of me, um, do some, shall we say, like some have some influence. So for example, you might say, okay, I really love to compare different perspectives. So what if instead of like jumping from, you know, following 30 different teachers online and like trying to consume everything, what if you had three teachers that had very different perspectives were essentially teaching the same thing, but from these different angles so that you stay, you know, that it, it, it honors that need for stimulation and honors that desire to see different angles, but isn't fully going into kind of the distraction mode of one new thing after another. And I think yoga gives room for individuality too. And I think that's why the yoga system has different paths understanding yourself knowing yourself is such a is such a great tool on this on the spiritual path that's that self-knowledge so taking that time to know yourself and it doesn't necessarily even have to be per se a, a spiritual practice it's really just knowing yourself and also is understanding what's coming in um you know the mind is 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 your best tool but you need to protect your mind because unless you protect your mind, other people, other elements, you know, want to stake claim in your mind. Like Facebook wants to mm -hmm. plant a flag in your mind and they want to have a certain influence over your mind. And, you know, Apple will want you every two years to be buying a new cell phone. And, you know, Google's all, everyone's vying for, for your mind space. Everybody wants to have an influ influence there to do, to get something from you, to get you to get their products or somehow consume whatever they're offering. So just really being aware of that. Because sometimes we give away our mind and we're not even aware of it. That, okay, you know, Facebook has a grip on me. You know, if I'm not checking Facebook every day, you know, my day is not complete. Well, so I think it's really important since we have, like we've talked about, we have so much coming at us and so much information. Mm -hmm you really have to protect your mind and you really have to monitor what comes in. It's almost like having a physical diet. You know, you, you want to, you want to be healthy. You want to understand what you're consuming and being careful about that. Well, mentally you have to do the same thing. People think, well, I can do all these things and have all these distractions and it's okay. And yeah. On some hand it could be okay, but if you really are focusing on, you know, controlling your mind and moving inward, then you really have to, to pay attention to, to what you're consuming and question what, what information comes to you. Because we make a lot of assumptions or we believe in a lot of things that just because it comes in, but it's not always true. So that contemplation, that sit, that ability to, to question, 
you know, what, what, what comes in and what information is coming in and what, what's really real. Cause there's a lot of things that aren't really real. That's, that's told to us and it's told and programmed to us cause it's told to us repeatedly until eventually we start to, to believe it. That's so important. Such great advice. Thank you so much for bringing that to the forefront and emphasizing that. Tell me if listeners today want to learn more about you or want to study with you, how would they go about doing that? First of all, I have a website, mipsm.org. My email address is jerome at mipsm.org. Or again, you can just contact me through the website. So yeah. Thank you so very much for coming on and for sharing your perspective and your wisdom with us today. I really appreciate it, Jerome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's just, it was just a great, great opportunity for me. So I really appreciate it. It's funny, as I'm recording this outro today, I feel really affected by the hectic pace and frenetic expectation of do-do-do that Jerome and I were talking about in this episode. Reflecting back on my conversation with Jerome, I really appreciate his advice to curate the stimulation you allow yourself to be exposed to on a regular basis. One thing I'm noticing for myself today is my willingness to get swept up in the creative details of a project and ignore the tasks that I decided ahead of time I was going to do today. In this moment, I feel really grateful for the systems I've developed over time to help me stay focused, because I am always going to have moments of being distracted, and sometimes that's okay. It, it can be delightful to be distracted, but instead of getting thrown off for weeks at a time, I'm only allowing myself to get thrown off for a limited amount of time. I'm not afraid that my inspiration for my creative projects is going to dry up. I know that that's always going to be there. Time management is one of the modules in the foundations of a yoga business group coaching program. And while it is not one of the sexiest topics, it's kind of the one that makes the others possible because we don't need to be adding more things to our to-do list. We really don't need more things to do in our lives. What we need is a better method of curating and prioritizing. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that registration is currently open for the next session of Foundations. So if you are listening in real time just after this episode was released in March of 2020, then I would love for you to go to teachingyoga.net slash foundations and check out all the details. If you're listening later on, that same link will give you access to the waitlist for the next time that I open up registration. And whether or not the Foundations of a Yoga Business Group Coaching Program is right for you now, I hope that this week you set aside time for stillness. This morning in my meditation, instead of trying to focus on a technique, I just focused on being still. And it was really lovely. There's a simplicity to that focus that strips away some of the stories and the expectations around meditation and allowed me to experience it in what felt like a more essential way. Whatever your own self-care or meditation practice looks like, I hope you know that it is just as important as your to-do list and making space for it is essential for your integrity as a yoga teacher. If you know that you need more than you're currently giving yourself. I wonder if you could just take one moment right now to pause and be still. 
whatever you're doing, even if you're driving, you can bring a stillness to the driving. If we gave ourselves more mini breaks like that, sprinkled through the whole day, I wonder what that would change for us. I wonder how that would change the way that we walk through the world. <laughs> 